in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5. It's a short psalm, 11, 12 verses, but here we see repeated elements that will will repeat itself uh, throughout the whole course of Scripture. Here we're given the the building blocks of uh, the life of prayer, and the very things that we are to pray for as first and foremost we are told of the nature of the God to whom we pray. This is Psalm chapter 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their most self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. They have rebelled against you. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is God's word. Let us pray. And gracious God and Father, we ask that as we give attention to this um, prayer of supplication, that you would so shape our hearts to pray and think your thoughts after you, that we would know you as the God who answers prayer and delights to deliver the righteous. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is certainly the basis for what we see in this particular psalm. It's a very simple psalm, and in really uh, many ways can be summarized in this fashion, that the groan of the righteous gives way to joy at the Lord's favor. And yet, as we work our way through the psalm, we feel as if we are climbing a steep mountain. You can notice here that there is an increase, uh, an ascent that takes place as those opening three verses begin with a prayer of groaning and they work up to a contemplation of the wickedness and God's hatred of sin. And then it focuses as if we've reached the mountaintop, speaking of the steadfast love of the Lord and His righteousness and his kindness in defending his own. And then we begin the descent down again as we consider once again uh, the wickedness and the schemes of men. But now, whereas the beginning of the psalm 
opened with grief and mourning. It ends with exaltation and joy, as the Lord has indeed answered prayer. So we'll take this uh, just a little bit at a time and give consideration now to these opening uh, verses. I think we find here a curious arrangement. Even as we work our way through the Psalter, you think of each and every uh, individual psalm being uh, uh, inspired of the Spirit, but even its arrangement in the Psalter seems to give a certain trajectory and motion. If you recall the past two psalms that we've looked at over the past few months, Psalms 3 and Psalm 4 have been evening psalms, prayers that the psalmist prays upon his bed. Think of Psalm chapter 3, verse 5, I lay down and I slept. I awoke for the Lord has sustained me. You think of Psalm 4, 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you, O Lord, cause me to dwell in safety. Yet now two times here in the opening verses it speaks of David's prayer, not only in the evening, but now it speaks of the morning prayers that he offers up to the Lord. Here we're given the picture and the image of a man whose entire life is bounded and shaped by prayer. Not just in the evening, but in the morning. It, it tells us of a man who does not treat prayer as a, uh, a something that, to check off on your uh, to-do list for the day so you can move on to bigger and better things. Uh, roughly half a dozen times in the New Testament, Paul will say over and over again, pray without ceasing. And here we are given reflections of uh, such prayers even in the Psalter, as we are told that the psalmist, the great psalmist prays not only in the evening as he lies down to sleep, but also in the morning as he goes for worship uh, to make his request before the living God. These prayers are not a casual feature to David's life. Note the intensification of the words. It's one of the things we need to, to notice in Hebrew poetry when we read the Psalter is that there are uh, repetitive lines, but usually those lines intensify and advance the statement that comes prior. It's one of those features. It's a, you might think of it uh, in, in modern English poetry, there's a rhyming of words uh, a lot of times. Think of it in Hebrew poetry, there's a rhyming of thoughts and ideas. So notice what the psalmist does here. Listen carefully to my words. Well, what kind of words are they? Well, pay attention to my groaning. Listen to my cry for help. We are told the nature of this type of prayer. It's not simply a happy, clappy type of prayer. Though There are, of course, times of great praise and adoration in other psalms. This is what we would call a psalm of supplication. Here is a man who feels such longing. He is uh, in, in need of great deliverance. He is, as a man, hoisted atop of a watchtower. There is something that ails him. And the, the prayer that he offers up this particular morning, again, is not a checkbox to be ticked off so he can move on to pursue worldly pleasures. There's this longing, there is an uneasiness, there is a, a restlessness to his prayer. He describes himself as a man in the watchtower. You know, one of my favorite uh, uh, movies or trilogy of movies is, of course, Lord of the Rings. And you think of that great scene, uh, I believe it's in, in Return of the King, where, where Aragorn is standing atop the watchtower looking out from, uh, from, Gon- from uh, um, Gondor, or from Rohan, uh, looking for the light, the watchtowers to, to light uh, coming from Gondor. That's, that's the picture that we see here. 
David is, he feels the pressure mounting on every side, and so he goes as a man to the watchtower, scoping out on the horizon, looking for the Lord to come with deliverance and aid. But we see that the Lord's delay does not drive David to despair. How many of us, uh, when we pray and we have not seen the answer to prayer right away, how many, how, how much, uh, how many of us uh, feel like we're driven to despair and have those temptations that assault our mind asking, has God really heard me? Will God truly answer prayer? So, see, we, we see here that David has great confidence in the Lord, even though the prayer has not yet been answered. In fact, the absence of an answer to prayer only increases David's watchfulness all the more. David is the king of Israel, and yet we see here in verse 3 that he puts his confidence and rest in the king of kings. Here's the king of Israel saying, my king, my God, there is one to whom even I give allegiance, the king of the earth, the maker of heaven and earth. John Calvin has this really wonderful statement regarding this particular psalm. I actually printed it on the front of the prayer list if you care to look at it. Um, I, I think it's one of the reasons I, you know, I, I keep trying to figure out who are the best commentators uh, to, to read and work through. And nine times out of ten, I still find that the best guys to read in, in preparing sermons uh, are the old guys. You know, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Matthew Henry, J.C. Ryle. And here is just a shining example. Calvin writes this on this particular passage on verse 3. No doubt in the exercise of longing, there is always implied some degree of uneasiness. Think about whatever it is that your heart longs for. You you feel the restlessness, whether or not you're homesick or whether or not uh, you're an engaged person awaiting your marriage day, uh, whether or not you're a person working towards that degree or towards retirement or towards paying off the mortgage or your student loans. There's that uneasiness that develops as you cannot wait, even even for the, the great road trip vacations with your families. There's things that we long for, and with that longing comes a certain sense of uneasiness. Calvin continues saying that those who are looking out for the grace of God with anxious desire will patiently wait for it. Why? Because he is confident that the Lord will answer. And so Calvin says we must learn then the uselessness of those prayers to which there is not added that hope which may be said to elevate the minds of the practitioners into a watchtower. In other words, what's Calvin saying? If there isn't embedded in your prayers that longing, that expectation for the Lord to answer, then your prayer is useless. The prayer of faith is a longing for that faith to be made sight. It's in, there's embedded with it a hope an expectation that the Lord will, in fact, answer our prayers. And so if you just go, oh, you know, you're yawning and praying through a list and, and there's no real expectation, then, then there, there needs to be a course correction to the heart that we need to learn what it means to wait patiently for the Lord of hosts, that He will deliver us. Faith waits for deliverance with eager expectation. There is what we might call a holy restlessness to prayer. And yet at the same time, this restlessness should not drive us to despair. 
as if we are to think that God will not hear us. David, in fact, grounds his confidence in the Lord's response. He, he, is, he is certain that the Lord will answer his prayer for two main reasons. The first reason we see here in verses 4 to 6, that God loathes wickedness. Again, note the, the intensification, the repetition that takes place in these verses. God does not delight in wickedness. In fact, he hates it. He destroys those who revel in it. He abhors the liar, the man of blood, the deceiver. Evil may not sojourn in the tents of the Most High. The the practitioners of evil will never take their stand in the righteous assembly. David is very clear. Consider how critical this is in David's uh, day and age where where the nations around him, uh, uh, the pop culture of the 8th century B.C., as it were, saw the gods of this world as capricious and malevolent. Gods who were given to bribes with shifting loyalties and inconsistent actions and attitudes. Here, David proclaims, we have a God of a different order. A God who subverts all of our expectations. Here is a God who does not change. Here is a God who not only hates evil, he will not wink at it. Here is a God who is utterly righteous. Becomes the foundation of David's confidence as he recognizes his particular situation, that he is surrounded by wicked men seeking to do him harm, David knows here's a God who is utterly righteous, and so he will not allow my steps to falter. See, this provides us with good news for those suffering under the weight of injustice. To those who, verse 5, are mocked by boastful men. Verse 6, those who are bearing under the dark cloud of slander. To those who have fallen prey to the man of blood. Reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, when the author of Hebrews even speaks of Abel. Here is a man who is innocent, who has lost his life to his bloodthirsty brother. Where Abel's life cries out from the, from the ground for justice. And yet, Abel knows that there is a God who is so just that not even death will have the last word. At the final judgment, the Lord will reckon all injustices. That's why Christ himself says, don't don't fear the men who can uh, kill the body. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. Because the Lord has a day of reckoning coming where all evil will be met with and dealt with. To those who have suffered loss at the hands of the deceiver, do not fret. There is one who will vindicate you. No one is above the law. Even the kings of this age are held accountable to the king of kings. And so David can wait confidently in the Lord's deliverance. And yet there's a second reason, a second motivation for David's confidence. You see here in verse 7, it is because of the loving kindness and the steadfast love and mercy of our God. I think it's rather fascinating what David does here. He uh, speaks of how the Lord hates the wicked and therefore the Lord will not hear the wicked. But what David does not then say is that the Lord will hear him because of his own righteousness. Because of his own moral goodness. Rather, he says, the Lord will hear me because of the Lord's own 
mercy, that steadfast love and kindness, the, the covenant fidelity of his maker and redeemer. What is it that we see David doing uh, in the, the beginning of the psalm? He is preparing the morning sacrifice. What were the morning sacrifices designed to do? It's a sacrifice for sin. Here's man who, a man who is a sinner just like his enemies. And yet there is something that distinguishes this sinner from the sinners around him. Here is the one who puts his hope in the mercy of the Lord. This psalm speaks to the universality of sin as we continue to make our way. uh, Even if you look down at verse 9, we'll get there a little bit more fully in a few minutes. But but notice what uh, David says there in verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Again, their whole inner being is one of total depravity. And this is the very passage that Paul cites in Romans chapter 3 when he builds up to his main point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's part of David's main point. The human race is constituted of wicked sinners. And David himself is a sinner just like the rest of mankind. And yet the Lord hears David's cry and the Lord rejects the boasts of the wicked. Why? The basis is not David's own righteousness. But verse 7, the loving kindness of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations. Though David is a sinner, he knows that here stands a God. That though this God hates wickedness, he will still abundantly pardon all those who turn to him. Such is the gracious character of God. As the Lord himself declares to Moses at the heights of Sinai, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, this repeated theme that we see set before us, this is what we might call Christianity 101, is that when it comes to sin, God will do only one of two things. He will either forgive sin, or he will punish sin. There is no third option. Sin is not something that the Lord will overlook or cover up. Sin is not something that he will forget about with the passage of time. It is not something that he will simply explain away, going, ah, I understand you had a rough day. Sinners are not able to stand before a holy God and bribe or talk their way out of their crimes, no matter how big or small those sins are. Sin will be dealt with in only one of two ways. The Lord will either pardon sin, or He will judge it. And right now is the period where the Lord is exercising His steadfast endurance. 
He is exercising great patience, granting a period of amnesty, a time for sinners to awaken to their senses and turn from their sin and turn to the righteous judge of all the earth who is indeed kind and merciful and who will indeed pardon sin. And so it leads those who have tasted of God's mercy, those who have heard of the mercy of God, it leads them to a holy fear. It leads them to reverence and awe. This is why David says, I will approach your temple in the fear of you. David knows he is walking not on the basis of his own goodness. Here is a man who who recognizes his own sin. Here is a man who wakes up early to offer those sacrifices for sin, knowing that he is guilty as well. Our sins merit death, and yet the Lord grants pardon to all who trust in him. So David approaches confidently in that holy fear to the throne of grace, and he prays for deliverance. And here we see the centerpiece, the the apex of this particular psalm. Here we reach the summit of the mountain. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. In other words, what David is praying is, what? Deliver me from evil. Here's a man who is surrounded, as it were, on all sides. He is saying, provide for me an escape route. Make my path straight through the slippery plots of men. Verse 9 depicts the wicked as the, the, the flatterer whose smooth words form a slippery slope down to the gates of hell. Slippery slide that leads to the grave. The men are two-faced. David's enemies are saying one thing to his face, and yet they are plotting his demise behind his back. Here are men who love evil more than good. Here are men who prefer lies to the truth. Nothing what they can say, nothing what they do say is reliable. The tongue flatters, but it is as a serpent rising up from hell itself, seeking to strike and to devour David. And so David prays, verse 10, essentially hoist them on their own petard. Let them fall by their own schemes. We see so many instances of this in the Scriptures. You think of Daniel, as he continues to entrust himself to the Lord, his enemies do what? They prepare a pit for him full of lions, and they cast him into the pit. And yet what happens David's own enemies fall are cast into that same pit that they have prepared, and Daniel is delivered. You think of Mordecai in the book of Esther, his great arch-nemesis, the Amorite, Haman. Haman builds the galley to have Mordecai hanged, and yet what is it that happens? We find at the end, Mordecai himself is the one who is hanged by his own instrument of doom. This is the nature. This is why uh, throughout the Psalms there's continual call not to seek vengeance for yourself, but let the Lord do these things. And this way the Lord so orders these things is that the wicked who do not repent will fall into the same trap that they have laid for the righteous. And it presents not a picture for us to boast, but I think a frightening image that is set before us, because David himself, the psalmist, gives us a type of Christ. 
Here is the intercessor of the Old Testament giving us a picture of the great intercessor, the Lord's King and Messiah who is set before us, who at, who, where there comes a point where He says, I will intercede for my enemies no longer. What a frightening image that is. Not out of vengeance. Not out of lack of love. But for the glory of God. As David says, make them bear their own guilt. Seek them out and destroy them. For they have rebelled against you. Who could pray that portion of the psalm? Something that Christ Himself prays. There comes a day where the mercy and the, what we might call it, rather the forbearance of God towards sinners, there will come a day where it comes to an end. And the Lord says, enough is enough. And the Lord Jesus returns. And after that point, there is no point of no return. Even prior to the final day, each and every person will meet a day, will find a day where the Lord says enough is enough. Every sinner. The Lord says today is the day you will perish. You think of Jesus' own parable. of The rich fool who builds up a big silo of goods for himself and says, ah, I'm going to build something bigger and make my name great. And the Lord says, you fool, today you will die. There comes a day where the Lord's forbearance in His own timing, according to His own timing, comes to an end. And He says, I've given you enough space, I've given you enough time. But now judgment must come. Again, it reminds us that God will do only one of two things with sin. He will pardon sin, or He will judge it. Sin is either met with at the cross, or it is met with at your own head. There a, this, this psalm should rouse us from our own slumber, our own uh, apathy towards sin. To deal with sin before it is too late. Because there will come a time And David's greater son will say, enough is enough. O Lord, let the wicked fall by their own schemes and plots. The Lord is long-suffering, but He will not tarry forever. There will come a day when judgment will fall. It's a sobering testament for us to seek refuge in the Most High before it is too late. But what we see as well is that though this is frightening in many ways, and it calls us to re-examine our own hearts, at the same time, the news of the Lord's judgment is good news for the righteous. It's good news for those who hope in the steadfast love of the Lord, as their enemies are indeed finally dealt with. This is David's prayer. This is why David stands on the lookout. Deliver me from the schemes of the wicked. David is anticipating the day where he can sigh a breath of relief. And what began as a groan of the righteous in the opening verses of the psalm ends in exaltation. 
And it ends with shouts of joy, not only for David, but for all the righteous. David stands as the principal. He stands as the figurehead. And yet it lays forth a principle for all who trust in the Lord to follow, as you see here in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them be glad. Let them sing for joy. David has already made it clear that these men are not righteous on account of their own merits. Rather, they are confident in the mercy and loving kindness of the Lord. Here, David speaks of an alien righteousness. One that only the Lord can give. It's the very thing that the law and the prophets testify to. It's the very thing of which Paul speaks of in Romans 3, 4, and 5. As Paul himself in Romans 4 points repeatedly to David as an example of that man who is justified by faith. Here stands a people who hunger and thirst for that alien righteousness. They hunger and thirst for the loving kindness of the Lord as they make those morning sacrifices, knowing that the Lord will make provision for their sin. And not only does He make provision for their sin, He also covers them with favor as a shield, protecting them from the fiery darts of the enemy. Here the Lord provides divine protection for his own, to those who trust in the Lord, to those who love his name, to those who seek refuge in him. He shelters them. He protects them. He rejoices over them with songs of singing and shouts of deliverance, according to Zephaniah 3. Here the righteous are invited to taste of the Lord's goodness, even in the midst of a deceitful and malicious world. Psalmist will say in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me where even in the midst of my enemies, though our enemies will surround us, the Lord encamps around him. He covers him as with a shield. Even though the armies of Egypt march against Israel, the Lord sends his banner, the fiery pillar, to protect them from the assaults of the wicked one. And he causes a highway in the desert. He splits open wide the waters of the Red Sea, providing a way of escape. The Lord here is pictured as the divine warrior, the one who comes to protect his own. This is, the, this is Mama Bear coming to protect her baby cubs. So what's the significance that we find here for the church in this day and age? I think there are three takeaways, all of them having to do with the character of God. First thing we need to consider is what the psalm tells us about God. Matthew Henry puts it like this, that this psalm tells us that God is, in fact, a prayer-hearing God. We are not lifting up our voices to a mute idol, a statue of gold that is unable to hear or unable to speak. Here is a God who answers prayer. There is a reason why David has set himself in the watchtower. He knows that the Lord will answer. But we also find that this prayer-hearing God is also a sin-hating God. He will not wink at sin. 
You will not wink at your sin. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You will not wink at my sin. This leads us to our second significant feature. What this psalm tells us about man. As Paul himself will cite this particular psalm, speaking of the universality of sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As you see in verses 9 and 10, the passage that he cites, speaking of their innermost being, their throat, their tongue, everything about them is twisted and bent on destruction. That's something that speaks of not just you know, one political nation, not one ethnic tribe. It is something that's universal. It courses through the blood of the human race. And it tells us our predicament. That if God hates sin and all are sinners, then we are left in quite a precarious situation were it not for the steadfast love of the Lord. And that is the last thing that it reminds us of. What it teaches us about the mercy of God. So that when the, the psalmist says, leave me, O Lord, in your righteousness. That God's righteousness is spoken of as his divine protection for those who seek refuge in him. That there is a righteousness as well that comes apart from works. As this man, a sinner like the rest of the human race, begins with the morning offerings, those morning sin sacrifices you see under the old covenant. And of course, the takeaway is not that we should wake up early in the morning and begin slaughtering goats and rams because the sacrifice has been dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who is both sacrifice and high priest, who, though rich beyond all splendor for love's sake, became poor, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul that he might bear the penalty of the law, undergoing all the miseries and afflictions of this life in an act of obedience, even obedience to death on a cross so that our sins might be dealt with, so that as he who knew no sin would bear the wrath of a holy God, Christ did so that we might bear the mercy of God. Because God cannot wink at sin, sin must be dealt with, and it is dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we are left to drink deeply from the fountain of grace. David's confidence here, even under the old covenant, was not contingent upon his own merits, but rather it is found in the mercy of the Lord who forgives transgression and sin. One who has made an end of sin at the cross so that we could find not only pardon for sin, but refuge as the world seeks to strike against the church with a deadly blow. And so the psalmist invites all who love the Lord to take refuge in him. For this God will not only abundantly pardon, he will also divinely protect his church from the slanders of men. As he will come one day in fire and in judgment upon all of his enemies. And so like David, we are called to pray even as our Lord has taught us to pray in the words, the final petition of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God and Father, we are so thankful that we have a God who has given himself to us, a God who is holy and righteous. And though we are sinners, we ask that you would continue to instruct us to seek our confidence not in our own righteousness or self-righteousness, for that righteousness is but as filthy rags. We ask that we would find our confidence and hope our longing and yearning, our hunger and our thirsting for our righteousness that only you can satisfy. And even as you have promised to us that all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. We ask that you would fill us with that righteousness, a righteousness that is received by faith and faith alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.